you know, when Van Pelt used it later that night, Stanford Steve kind of could identify with it, and he loved it. And it was almost like Van Pelt was taken aback at the size of the bites that I was taking. And I mean, I just I couldn't believe that anybody would be surprised that you would grab a handful of I guess we'll call them the petals, the onion petals. Mm-hmm. And I, who no one no one like goes in there acting as though their thumb and index finger are tweezers and is like playing operation and takes one of those things out of there, do they? Like that's not surely there's not people who really do that. Like I it's like I told Steve, he called me to give me a heads up that it was on and he's laughing about the size of the bites and I was like, Buddy, that's that's regular work. Like if you and I went to Outback right this second, that's the exact same way that I would eat that. Like why would I eat it any differently? Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Will, we're not messing around today. Unlike the NCAA who decided to mess around with overtime rules instead of fixing targeting or faking injuries. So good on them for doing that. Also giving Mark Emmert a nice little extension, bearing the lead with that. Golf clap to the NCAA. Again, doing their jobs at a very high level, but I digress. Um, I wanted to be able to put a bow on spring camp with that now in the books in the SEC, so I've got some superlatives I want to hand out, and in case you haven't heard, it is draft week, so I've got some can't-miss draft predictions related to the SEC. Cannot miss. Uh, Cole Kubelik also joined me to talk about both of those things, and then we're going to end with celebrating championships as an adult in figuring out But before we get to all of that, today's podcast is brought to you by College Football Uncensored. Yes, you've heard me talk about it before. It's Saturday Down South's newest podcast. It's Marler. It's Tyler Huck. They talk about everything college football and then some, whether you want your spring game takes, you want debates about the most hated athletes in sports, or you just want to hear a couple of guys chopping it up about whatever comes to mind, you're going to love College Football Uncensored. During the offseason, it's one episode a week, dropping every Monday morning. And hey, if you hate the bleep button, you're in luck. There's no bleep button needed, actual curse words. They've got a lot of fun stuff planned, I know, for for the offseason ahead. So if you haven't, go to wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to College Football Uncensored. Go do that right now. What a world, man. I've used the the bleep button twice, and they've both been for you. That's, oh, wow. (laughs) That's that's a good point. I always, okay, so, like, I do the, I I, I always say, like, you know, I I don't curse, um, I tried to, you know, like nine years ago, whenever it was, I tried to just take that out of my vocabulary just because of what I was going to be doing for a living as well as like some personal beliefs and stuff like that. You don't want to be end up like uh, Tom, what's his name, Tom Brenneman? Yeah, didn't want to go down <laughs> that live path, actually. You know, just didn't ever want to put myself in that spot. And I, I interpret it a little bit differently if I'm quoting somebody else because, you know, with the Justin Fields thing, I I'm not just going to sit there and pretend like that doesn't add an important context because it does so you know used in moderation as i always say when i'm like watching an episode of schitt's creek which i think they use cursing so effectively whenever david drops an f-bomb i just die laughing every single time because you know cursing in my opinion should be used you know in, in moderation at least from a comedic standpoint in that so it has its time it has its place but yeah you're using the bleep button on me now so times are times are changing Spring superlatives, SEC spring superlatives. How's that for alliteration? That's got three S's in there. 
I always loved the superlatives in the senior edition of the school newspaper in high school. I was biggest sports fan um, back in the day. Really, really predictable. Will, did you ever win a superlative your senior year? No, I was never there senior year. <laughs> okay. I mean, who was? Let's be honest. Let's be honest. Um, I remember there was always this, uh, there was a lineman on the football team who used to, like, every time I'd walk past this guy, he would just yell, sports! And I was like, all right. Cool, man. Um, I, I like. I think you're making fun of me. I, I, I am what I am. Sorry. Um, worst ways to make a living, in my opinion. But whatever. You do you. That's totally fine. Anyway. What a guy. We just, what a character. Anyway. What a character. This dude played sports and made fun of somebody else for liking sports. Um, I don't know. That's weird move, guy. Weird move. I have spring superlatives, and these are totally 100% made up, but that's why they're superlatives and not actual awards that we're handing out here. Best spring game entertainment, Jimbo Fisher mic'd up. This one was easy. I'm not gonna do a Jimbo impression. I'm not at that level with it yet. That's gonna take a few more years to be able to workshop, but I am glad that even with Gus Malzahn no longer in the SEC, we still have a coach who gives a good old daggummit because that on a hot mic is just always going to play really well. Jimbo actually wasn't really critical with his quarterbacks in the way that you would typically think. He would blast his receivers. He would pretty much just rip them whenever they would have a drop or a missed route. At one point, he's even like, you receivers, man. I, there was one, He blasted Anaya Smith for this route that he run for not breaking off in the right way. It was interesting. He's pretty harsh on the offensive line too. AM fans, that offensive line is not going to be as bad as it was in the spring game. I think you all know that. Luke Matthews, yeah, they have another Matthews at AM. He was out. He's going to be the starting center. Jameer Johnson, he's arriving this summer from Tennessee. Kenyon Green, he's the lone returning starter among the Maroon Goons on that offensive line. He's still learning how to play left tackle at this level. Anyways, Jimbo was great because he would build up his quarterbacks pretty much at every chance that he would get. He dropped a little, like, nice job, Zachy. Zach Calzada had some impressive moments in this game down the stretch but I'm not buying Greg McElroy's take that it's a true battle and that Zach Calzada sort of like bridged the gap between himself and Haynes King. I still think Haynes King is the guy. That's what I wrote about afterwards on Saturday. I think that's why Jimbo gave him so many reps with the ones. Jimbo about lost his mind though at one point when Haynes King jumped on the fumble and he yells out, stop jumping on the ball. And I, again, I can't do a Jimbo. That was a really bad Jimbo. We're gonna have to edit that. But Haynes King in a spring game wearing a green jersey had to go to the injury tent at the end of it, which was just strange. He came back out, he threw a touchdown pass to end the day. But I'm going to constantly say to myself while watching Haynes King, I really, really hope that he isn't Bo Nix 2.0. And I don't think he will be. I don't think he will be. But there are some of the things that he does outside of the pocket where I hope that reliancy to be able to use his legs isn't there. And in a spring game, it wasn't. It definitely wasn't. And I think the accuracy is at a much different place than Bo Nix was at. I think he's going to throw to the middle of the field a lot more. Anyways. Let's, let's wash away the Bo Nix comp because that was dumb. I am a believer in Haynes King and spring game takes, kind of takes away some of that mobility that we would typically see. I think when he's in his normal element in the fall, we're going to be able to see that much, much more and he's going to use that in, in a very positive way to help that offense. But Jimbo is also probably gonna be a little bit more critical of his quarterbacks in the fall, just a, a guess. Let's go ahead though and start the GoFundMe Added on top of Jimbo's $75 million contract, 
just so that he could be mic'd up every game because it was great A entertainment. Anybody who watched the spring game got to see that. No, the taxpayers of Best. Texas need to demand that. We don't need to pay him any more money. That should be included. Dig up some of that oil money. I know it's there. We can make this happen. College Station, do your best. Best spring fling, Ajay Hall. A lot of candidates for spring fling. And to be clear, I'm kind of putting spring fling as like the guy who might be making more headlines now than he does in the fall, or at least it seems like he's having a louder presence. John Trey Kirkland, um, LSU receiver, had over 200 yards in LSU spring game. Uh, Zaquandre White, South Carolina running back who shined without Kevin Harris, Marshawn Lloyd playing in that spring game. Uh, Cameron Latsu, the Alabama tight end, he had a 59-yard touchdown, kind of some busted coverage, but he's been a revelation during the spring. I've already kind of talked about him along with my guy Billingsley. Um, but I'm going to go with Latu's teammate, Ajay Hall. Everybody who watched the Alabama spring game or if you saw the highlights, Ajay Hall had like three ridiculous catches in that spring game. That was a very loud four catches for 72 yards, whatever it was. Joe Tessitore screaming, Ajay Hall! It, it felt like fall. And I, I love that. It was great. I think Ajay Hall is going to be a bit like 2019 George Pickens where he can make a ton of those highlight reel plays. I would not bet against that. But I, I bet, and I, he's probably going to go viral a couple more times for some of these catches. But being a freshman receiver in the SEC, it is really, really hard to be that go-to guy. Kayshawn Butte didn't really get going until late last year. Jamar Chase had 23 catches for 313 yards as a true freshman. Even Bama's stud receivers, they, they rarely blow up early. It's not 2012 Amari Cooper. Even the four guys who are going to be top-end first-round guys, like Jalen Waddell was incredible as a true freshman. He was the best of that group of four, and he averaged less than three catches per game. Ajay Hall still has to show that he, he can consistently get separation in this league. Not an easy thing to do. That was sort of the knock on him coming into to spring camp, into college ball. I, I think John Mechie and Billingsley, of course, they, they become kind of the go-tos for Bryce Young in that offense. But Ajay Hall, probably going to provide a lot of these entertaining moments. Most surprising transfer. Mike Woods leaves Arkansas for Oklahoma. If you don't know Mike Woods, you might not think anything of it. You might just think, of course, why wouldn't a guy go from Arkansas to Oklahoma? He wants to play for a national championship. You get to play with Spencer Radler. You get to be in Lincoln Riley's offense. Makes a lot of sense, but it's the timing of it. Woods, as um, SDS's own Michael Bratton has been saying for a while, best returning deep threat in the SEC. K.J. Jefferson has a beautiful deep ball. He was the perfect complement to Traylon Burks as well. Mike Woods was probably in position where you know he and Traylon Burks were going to be the best one-two punch among receivers in the SEC returning. Like I even tweeted that, like I think it was last Monday, last Tuesday, whenever it was, that the only SEC team returning multiple players with 600 receiving yards was Arkansas with Mike Woods and Traylon Burks. And then hours later, maybe it was even minutes later, I don't know, rumors come out about Woods entering the transfer portal and then that was confirmed the very next day. And at first it's probably like, okay, we're connecting some dots, maybe it's Justin Stepp. He's the receivers coach who left Arkansas for South Carolina. Stepp is from Columbia, by the way. Sam Pittman had kept him from Chad Morris's staff, but then Woods comes out and he's like, nah, it actually didn't have anything to do with the staff, got a great relationship with them. That's the other part of this. Follow Mike Woods on social media and it's even weirder. He tweeted a bunch after the spring game. And if you saw any of that stuff, you would never ever think that's a guy who's about to enter the transfer portal. I had someone tell me that 
there's something off the field that could potentially come up and it's nothing violent. He didn't like fail out of school or anything like that. And I don't want to get too into the nitty gritty, but that something happened and it put Arkansas in a tough spot. Again, I don't want to dig too deep into the details here without knowing the full story, the full context. But when I was told this, I thought that it made more sense and it was a little bit less baffling if this thing is true, at least with the timeline, the way that it played out, the way that it did. Still though, brutal, brutal loss and replacing for Arkansas won't be easy. I know they're optimistic about Davian Warren and they think that some of these younger guys they have an Oklahoma transfer as well that they think could be promising, but replacing the things that Mike Woods did as a deep threat, not easy. The most Malik Willis-like spring game quarterback Let's take. Let's go. Hendon Hooker at number 10 in my SEC quarterback rankings, post-spring SEC quarterback rankings. Yes, I know I've talked about it in the past. I don't really, really like doing the quarterback rankings. I'd rather do tiers, but I realize it's part of the business. Um, Hendon Hooker is actually the guy that Malik Willis beat last year at Virginia Tech, so there's some irony there. My post-spring quarterback rankings, which I didn't do last year because, well, we didn't have spring. So last time I did it was in 2019 when the Malik Willis thing happened. Um, if you want to see all of the, the quarterback rankings that I did, SaturdayDownSouth.com, go follow us on Instagram. Um, spoiler alert, it's a bit of a crapshoot this year and you're probably going to disagree with it. I, I, again, I've already said don't like the quarterback rankings. It forces me to project starters and rank them. So if I'm wrong on that, it's like, wow, how can this guy be an elite SEC quarterback when he can't even win his own starting job? That's what happened with the Malik Willis thing a couple of years ago. If you're not familiar with that, we've talked about it on this podcast in the past. I had Malik Willis at number eight in my post-spring SEC quarterback rankings. We found out two weeks later he was QB three at Auburn, and he entered the transfer portal shortly thereafter. Connor, By the way, where's smells on though? That's the real take here because when we saw this man play. How did he do, Connor? I'm just saying. Better or worse There's than something Bo to be said. I had so many people <laughs> validate that in the last year that you have no idea. Like whenever Malik Willis would do something big at Liberty, which, you know, there were tons of moments last year, I would get tweets of like, maybe this wasn't the dumbest thing you've ever come up with. So a little bit vindicated on that. Malik Willis, if he's entering the rankings in terms of SEC quarterbacks, He's top five if you would put him in there this year, right? I mean, led all, led all FBS quarterbacks in rushing last year. I'm just saying. The point, though, is that one of these, probably, one of these rankings that I have, it's going to get cold taked really soon. The, the odds are in favor of that. I did have, well, heads up, I did have Miles Brennan at number four. But I put in there, I think it was the first sentence that I had after Miles Brennan, if Max Johnson wins the job that I probably put him somewhere in that four to six range. I've already spoken my truth about owning all the Brennan stock. I have not sold any of it. I've locked it away. It is in a good place. It's going to grow. I'm confident in that. I, I still think that battle goes into the fall though. So even if Miles Brennan like loses the quarterback battle, which he could, that's still very much a possibility. I'd still probably be like, hey, I want Miles Brennan starting for the majority of SEC teams. Not all, but the majority of them. So that's what I base these rankings on. It's who would I want starting for my team to win a game tomorrow. And Hendon Hooker is the guy who might get me into some trouble. I only had him at number 10, so it's not that high, just behind Bo Nix, ironically enough. But Hooker is making me a little bit nervous now or some of the circumstances around him. And part of it was the spring game because Harrison Bailey looked a lot like 2016, 2017 Drew Locke with Josh Heupel. Hooker didn't. And he also had a bad pick six, kind of a late throw and just the type of throw that you can't make 
in the fall. You'll get ripped. That's Jared Garantano. Tennessee fans have seen enough of that throughout their lifetime to know a bad late throw when they see it. And he did have, though, he ended the day with this diving touchdown that kind of, it salvaged a little bit of, of some of what the numbers were going to look like. And there's also the fact that Tennessee just brought in Joe Milton, the transfer from Michigan. Speaking of baffling transfers that I don't really understand, I don't think Joe Milton's the guy at Michigan or at Tennessee coming from Michigan. He really struggled with accuracy after that season opener, after you know everybody was just giving him all sorts of praise. Michigan finally has its guy. That didn't end up happening. But the fact that Josh Heupel went out and got another Power 5 transfer... Maybe a little bit telling. Maybe a little bit telling. My gut says this is about Josh Heupel knowing that he's probably going to have somebody transfer out by the time the season starts, and his quarterback room could look very different in the fall. But above all else, he needs to be able to have those options because selling this offense for Josh Heupel is his biggest year one asset. I'm trying to tell myself with Hendon Hooker that you couldn't really run or judge him based on his full arsenal in the spring game. It's just not there for mobile quarterbacks. This is a guy who led Power 5 quarterbacks in rushing last year. Harrison Bailey against a real pass rush, still kind of worrisome. The footwork, he didn't really get that development last year that he should have with Jeremy Pruitt. And Hendon Hooker's skill set would probably be better with that leaky offensive line, which Tennessee could have. But yeah, I'm ready to be wrong about this. And I think there's a pretty decent chance that this ends up kind of blowing up in my face and maybe he doesn't win the starting job. Maybe he transfers again this summer. And if he does, and if that happens, I'll own it. Okay, the most, the guy I am most excited to see in a non-spring setting. A lot of candidates, tons of candidates. Uh, it's almost too easy to do the mobile quarterbacks. I've already talked about that enough on this podcast. Really tempting just for me to go with Haynes King, John Rice Plumley, of course, all bang the drum team. He wasn't in any spring setting on the football field except doing sideline interviews. He's still doing the baseball thing. Um, my Kentucky guys, Wandell Robinson, Chris Rodriguez, candidates as well. Derek Stingley in a non-Bo Pelini defense. Will, that, that has to be it for you, right? Just a non-Bo Pelini defense is exciting enough for me. <laughs> Eli Rick's gonna have a big year in a non-Bo Pelini defense. Although he had a big year last year in a non in an actual Bo Pelini defense. I'm so Bryce serious. Young. Me and you could coach those two quarterbacks to success. I don't understand <laughs> how that happened. We literally be like, hey dude, play cat defense, stick on that guy. That's it. Two of the receivers are done. <laughs> Seriously, what if you I've I've thought about that so much. Like if you could go back to this time last year and say, you know who's gonna have the worst passing defense in FBS is LSU. The, the team with Derek Stingley. Oh, and Derek Stingley's going to be healthy for most of the year, and they're still going to have the worst passing defense. That's that's not showing up on Bo Pelini's resume anytime soon. Don't think that's making the cuts. Anyway, um, I, I got I got enough words on Bo Pelini. But that's, listen, that's why spring is great. We're springing ahead to progress, man. Amen. Amen. Bryce Young, another guy on that list. Uh, excited to see a non-spring setting, of course. That qualifies into the mobile quarterback group, although he's not quite going to have the same sort of rushing production as some of these other guys, I think. And then Jordan Davis, of course, defensive tackle, Georgia. Casey, haven't heard of him. Kind of a big deal. A candidate to probably be in that top two to three best defensive players in the SEC coming into the 2021 season. But the guy that I went with, and I thought about this a lot, and I kind of changed my mind, I'm going with Tank. Tank Bigsby... I saw the flashes in the spring game and that long touchdown run he had where he gets a massive hole up the middle. And I don't know how many holes like that he's going to get to run through during the year, but 
he makes this cut about six yards into his run and then he's gone. And on TV, when he makes the cut, it looks like he's just making this cut against air, even though there's presumably a safety coming downhill at him. But then when you actually see a second later on TV and you're watching this, and then when the safety comes into frame, he's already running backwards. Like Tank set him up six yards in advance and had him totally turned around. It was one cut, it was gone. And that's the thing to me that takes his game to that next level and what he can do an even better job of this upcoming season. Again, the running lanes, Probably not going to be that wide open this year. I think a lot of teams are going to load the box against him. Bo Nix still has to show that he can stretch the field. They need to find some downfield weapons without Seth Williams, without Anthony Schwartz. But that's what's so great about Tank and why I'm so excited to see him healthy this year is because he doesn't need the massive running lanes to be so entertaining. His ability to break tackles is going to still be on full display. Pro Football Focus had him as the fifth best broken tackle rate in FBS. The spring cliche, you know, as we brought up not too long ago, it also says that a normal offseason will do him wonders. I think playing in, playing in Mike Bobo's offense is also going to do him wonders because he's going to get a ton of work as long as he is healthy. That's probably the other part of this that I'm holding on to is that I voiced my concerns about him staying healthy with that running style, with the thin running back depth that they have right now. So we better appreciate Tank while he's still out there this fall. So... Those are my superlatives. I left out class clown, best couple, probably a few others next time. Well, are there any others that I probably should have been able to, to bring up here? Biggest sports fan. <laughs> biggest sports fan. I don't know who biggest sports fan is. We're going to have to wait and see that. Um, it might be Mark Stoops. Mark Stoops has been all over the volleyball stuff as well for, for Kentucky. Shout out Kentucky I volleyball. feel like it's someone in Kentucky. I don't know why. They always have like some characters, some guys that would be like good commentators. I don't know who it is yet, but the interesting Kentucky players who, are, who I'm waiting for. Okay, I like that. I like that. They, they, they like their sports up there in Lexington. It's, it's a year-round deal. And they're a football they're school now. Basketball. Football and volleyball school. Oh, fact. National championship in volleyball. They're they're totally legit. Hey, SEC's on the board for volleyball championships. Good for the SEC. Finally winning titles. Let's transition to my can't miss draft predictions. These can't miss. The draft is so weird though because we spend months and months predicting it, and even McShay and Kuiper are wrong about the vast majority of their picks when they come out with their final mock drafts. But nobody ever remembers or cares about like what their percentage was. It's not like we're sitting here on Sunday after the draft and we're like, oh, McShay had 41% success rate. Daniel Jeremiah was 48%. Like Nobody ever does that or cares, but we all consume all of their content all the time. And it's so different with compared to doing something like game predictions where everybody remembers what exactly you picked. And if you picked against you know, this fan base's team, they're going to let you know about it. Like, you can't say that Tennessee's going to score zero points and then watch them put up 40 and then not get roasted for that in the following week. It's very weird how that works. But because nobody cares about who's right and wrong with the draft, um, shameless plug, by the way, for Adam Spencer and I, our mock draft, by the time that people are listening to this, it is live on SaturdayDownSouth.com. Go check that out. We only do one mock draft, not to brag or anything. We're... Uh, we're a mock draft of integrity, like the, the bracket of integrity, same sort of deal. So let's do some can't miss NFL draft predictions. I've got McCorkle at number three happening, set, set it in stone, going to the 49ers, Mac Jones, McCorkle, for those who don't know who McCorkle is. Um, but Kyle Shanahan, he said that 
he can't guarantee that anyone will be here on Sunday. He's not wrong when he says that. I, I, I'm not going to sit here and call him out and say, look, you can point to this, this, and this. If we all just kind of stay in our you know, respective bubbles that we're going to be fine by Sunday. You know, Kyle Shanahan brings up a very interesting point. But Mac Jones to San Francisco, book it. It fits what they want to do. I've spoken my piece on this before and how while I, I understand that he, from a physical standpoint, doesn't have the traits of others, people are going to rip Sam Fran for trading up to go out and get their guy, even though going from 12 to 3, it's not exactly mortgaging the farm the way that others have in the past in the draft. A certain Chicago Bears team may or may not have done that for Mitch Trubisky, whatever, that's water under the bridge. But Kyle Shanahan finally gets to draft his guy. And for an offensive-minded coach, a quarterback guy, where you don't have to just inherit the situation, I think that he really has has taken this process that much. You know, he's, he's really kind of taken onus of that. And that's why Mac Jones is going to be the guy there. And I'm not buying the, the Trey Lance buzz at number three. It still baffles me that a dude with 300 FCS-level attempts is seen as like this obvious top 10 pick. That just blows me away. Absolutely blows me away when a lot of the same things that people are criticizing Mac Jones for, for having all the perfect circumstances around him, all that talent. It's like, what, what do you think he has at North Dakota State at the FCS level, wherein he probably has an even more significant advantage than Alabama going against SEC competition, and the guy only has 300, whatever. Um, but I, I, I just can't get there with Trey Lance. So he might succeed in the right spot. It might be a Josh Allen thing, but that feels like the biggest roll of the dice of the entire draft. I, I think it's Mac at three, and I think Justin Fields probably trending on Twitter within like, I don't know, Will, like two minutes, three minutes? Oh, he's not going to. He's going to, before like the, the pre-draft show starts, he's probably trending on Twitter right now. Probably is. He's been trending at various moments throughout the last, I don't know, like three, four months. Not trending because of his Chipotle burrito. If I never see one of those ads again, <laughs> oh, that'll be great. I don't need to see that anymore. Um, I, I think somebody trades up for Justin Fields. The Broncos and the Patriots are the two teams that I would wonder about because, and I have this in our the mock draft that's up on SaturdayDownSouth.com, where the Broncos trade up from nine to be able to go up and get him at five. I think all five quarterbacks are going to be off the board in the top ten. If the Panthers go after Trey Lance at eight or something like that, wouldn't be incredibly surprising. You know what? Let's do this. Well, let's do the top ten picks. And keep in mind, we're recording this early on Wednesday afternoon, so if any of these trades come up you know, Wednesday night or something like that, we're not going to be able to adjust. But people like the mocks, right? So let's, top ten, is that good with you? if we do that yeah okay all right one um you're never going to believe this but i think trevor lawrence goes number one overall two zach wilson to the jets three already said mac going to the 49ers four kyle pitts going to the falcons don't think they end up trading that pick and i don't think that they they necessarily go after the quarterback they just take the best player available which kyle pitts would be and then five, as I was just saying, I think the Broncos trade with the Bengals and they go up to five and they get Justin Fields. Six, and I know this would pain you as an LSU fan not to see Jamar Chase with Joe Burrow, but I have Jamar Chase going six to the Dolphins to play with Tua. And then seven, the Lions going after Devontae Smith, 166-pound wonder. Eight, Panthers, Trey Lance. Nine, with that trade, the Bengals go back to nine, and they end up getting Panay Sewell at number nine overall, which would just be a massive, massive win for them and Joe Burrow because they'd probably add a first, a second in the future as well to be able to do that. And then the Cowboys at 10 seem like they're going to be going after Patrick Sertan, the quarterback out of Alabama, of course. How did I do 
Um, because I hope I'm wrong with that Bengals pick trading that because I'd love to see Jamar Chase and Joe Burrow again for like the next decade or so, but it just doesn't feel like that always works out. So how, how did I, how did I do with that top 10? So, okay, let's back up a sec. So the thing with the Niners is very funny to me. Um, cause like I'm just rooting for chaos. And if you've seen any of this stuff coming out of the Niners subreddit, they're like almost in full out civil war about Mac Jones right now. So any of that would be hilarious. I'm so pro them taking either Mac Jones or Trey Lance because I think either of those would be hilarious content. Um, like trading up. I mean, either way. And I think that, I think that Mac Jones could succeed in that system. I think that ultimately the fans are honestly probably going to be wrong, but it's just going to be very funny to like see that happen like real time. Um, see if they get you know booed or whatever. I think the Falcons getting pits. He's going to be awesome and the Falcons aren't. They'll find a way. Anyway, uh, the, the Bengals. Yeah, no, I mean, hey, I like Jamar Chase. I also like Joe Burrow's knees. I think that Joe Burrow having knees is good for society. I'll say it. Someone has to. Agreed. Uh, so many people yep. have sent me that picture of Joe Burrow sitting on the throne, and they're like, these uniforms look awesome. I'm like, do you see that giant scar on his knee, bro? Like, every single time I get sent that picture, I'm just like, I don't know how many more of those hits that dude has in him. I mean, that's just bad. Like, you can't just be doing that. So, at the end of the day, it's like, you know what I'm saying? I'm so pro-protecting Joe Burrow. I'm so protecting, so pro-protecting every good quarterback, giving them a chance to succeed. I'm pro to having rep- weapons in Miami. I think that's a good deal. Um, and I think, yeah, the Bengals, it would be so Bengals to trade out of that pick and then end up with, like, somebody random. <laughs> so, hopefully they stay there and pick one of the two obvious options. Um, but either way, you know, I'd be happy as just a football fan. Uh, and then, yeah, I, th- I think the rest of it makes a lot of sense. In the mock draft that I did with Adam, when I had the Bengals trading back to nine or trading you know, with the Broncos, I was like, ho- ho- I was hoping it would it would play out with like Adam not take because Adam and I so like basically the way that we did it, we put ourselves in the position of whatever general manager making that pick was, and I was hoping that Adam wouldn't take Sewell with one of those picks, and that Adam takes Sewell for the Panthers at eight, and I'm like, well, crap, this did not work out. This was a horrible trade that I just concocted, and this would work out terribly for the Bengals because I ended up having them take like Slater at nine or something like that, which they probably ended up taking a Jalen Waddle instead, but. You know who knows? I just I, I want I want that to happen so badly, but I'm a little bit worried that we won't get to see that that Jamar Chase Joe Burrow connection again. Because good God, it was so much fun, so much fun. Yeah, I think what you got to do if you want to be on the cutting edge of mock drafts is just keep pushing Justin Fields down the board. So Chris Sims is like the champion right now for them going all the way to the Super Bowl champions. I say you just put him in the fifth round of the Patriots. And then that way, it's <laughs> you got to one-up yep, him. Smart. And then it's like, hey, you know, if he falls even 10 spots, you'd be like, see, never believed him going top 10. <laughs> yep, that's, that's good. And I think a lot of people are in that camp where they're defending one specific quarterback in this class. And I'm kind of subconsciously doing it too, although I'm the unpopular one who likes both Mac and Fields, which... I'm supposed to, Twitter tells me that I'm supposed to be supporting one or the other, but I watch them the most. I'm like, you know what? I would absolutely bet on both of these guys succeeding in, in the NFL. Who's the one that you're defending in that group, maybe in that top five? Um, man, I just feel bad for Zach Wilson because he's going to go from BYU to New York City into that organization, which just had a young quarterback that everybody likes. And I, I, I think that he, weirdly enough, it would... I think several quarterbacks taken past him are going to do better than him, and I don't think that's his fault. So in a way, it's almost like I'm defending him because I'm prepared. Because Mm -hmm. you can see how this goes with these kind of teams. I mean, everybody until Baker Mayfield, which everything changed around him, that the Browns drafted, like when Manziel went there, it was like, this isn't going to work. 
Um, so like, so yeah, I think I think that I'm very pro pretty much everybody. And like I said, I think Matt can survive in um, or can can succeed in that Shanahan system. I think whoever gets Trey Lance, it, that's super system dependent. But it's weird. I think that we have a ton of good quarterbacks this year, and a lot of them are going to be dependent on their situation, how smart the people around them are. All I heard was you're defending all these quarterbacks. I'm excited. Yeah. I can't wait. I'm fired up, bro. I mean, like five quarterbacks in the top ten after this wild year. This is grade A entertainment. This is. This is right up your alley, too. This is this is like peak kind of that crossover where, where you, you've kind of been able to like – you're you're a little bit more into the NFL circles than I am. But this is very much like the the draft dream for, the, for draft Twitter, at least. At least that's what it seems like. Oh, yeah. So – we got more can't miss predictions. I'm not gonna spend too, too much time on round one just because some of you might be listening to this on Friday and you'll be like, can't miss, bro. You, you already missed, missed all of these, all bro. Of these. <laughs> <laughs> but let's do this. Let's predict the SEC first rounders. Last year, the SEC broke the record with 15 first rounders. The previous record was 12. I think that happens again, where the SEC ends up having 12 first rounders. So I already got the top five there, or the the five in the top 10 with Mac, Pitts, Chase, Smith, Sertan. So the seven others that I have coming off the board in the first round, Jalen Waddell, JC Horn, Terrace Marshall, Elijah Moore, Najee Harris, Jamin Davis, and Landon Dickerson. I think the guys who kind of get left out who have been mocked into the first round, Kadarius Toney, Aziz Ojolari, and then Christian Barmore are the guys that end up falling and going day two, but that we've seen them in the top. But those guys, along with like Nick Bolton, Alex Leatherwood, Kellen Mond, still probably in that like early to mid second round range. Speaking of Kellen Mond, let's do some pick range. How about a prediction <laughs> for this? I think 39 to 55 is where he ends up. That starts with Carolina. And if they don't follow my can't miss predictions, which again, they can't miss, but you know, let's just say hypothetically if it misses and they don't go with Trey Lance, they would be on the board to take a quarterback. So teams in that range, that 39 through 55 pick range in round two, these are the teams. Panthers, Broncos, Lions, Patriots, Raiders, Washington football team, Bears, Colts, Steelers. All of those teams could be in the market for Kellen Mond. And that's why, and I've been saying this for the last few weeks, that's why Kellen Mond's stock has risen so much. It's, it's basic supply and demand. There are so many teams in the NFL right now that have these unsettled situations at quarterback, but with such a high price to get into the top four, that next tier starts earlier than what we're used to seeing. That's why Davis Mills, the kid out of Stanford, is getting so much love as well. I won't do a pick range for Kyle Trask because I think he falls in around like, well, my, my prediction was actually that he was going to go day three. And I just see him being the guy who were like just sitting there waiting. And it's a little bit of the Jared Stidham thing a couple years ago where you're just like, oh my God, like how has this guy not come off the board yet? And he's like the best player available going into Saturday of the draft. By the way, when Momo Sonogo... Uh, said in that interview that Jared Siddham was the best quarterback that he faced. Should I have opposed that and been like, what about Trask? What about Tua? What about Mac? He didn't face 2019 Joe Burrow because he was out for the year, got injured in the season opener. So he's off the hook there. But Will, should I have been a little bit more like, hey, 
you know, kind of digging deeper into the archives, Jared Stidham was the was really the best. He was all over it, though. I mean, he might just be a secret weapon because, like, we've only seen him in a system that doesn't really work for him. And then Cam Newton t- took his job, which who among us wouldn't have our jobs taken by Cam Newton? I feel like Cam Newton could take my job right now. So, like, I, he might just be actually good. I, we have we literally have no idea. Like, true. And will because Cam we know is so good on social media with the hieroglyphics. <laughs> I head on a swivel with that one because he could be coming for you. He could be coming for you. Well, um, Adam Spencer mocked Trask to the Saints at 28 overall. If that happened, would you A, cry, B, weep, which I realize is similar, but you know, a little bit different, C, delete Twitter, D, do the Joe Pesci Home Alone thing where you're so angry that you can't even say words and it's just gibberish, or uh, E, all the above? Uh, I mean, I give him a shot. I, I'm kind of at that point where <laughs> what? I'm I'm kind of at that point. Where we've already gone through the thing of me saying I didn't think Fromm was gonna be a good NFL quarterback. The Saints leaking that they wanted him. Me like doing backflips there about like oh this is gonna happen. So I mean, hey, Sean Payton also better than me at his job. If he says Caltrask is who we want, I mean, I love Jameis, so like I can be a bamboozled with quarterbacks, as we've learned. I like to be positive about everybody. So <laughs> right now we got Jameis. I like a lot of the measurables about Jameis. Uh, I think that Trask has like doesn't have a lot of that, you know, the the recruiting status, all that different stuff. But hey, a Trask Jameis battle, considering the Saints are going to be a contender, that'd be hilarious. I'm look, I, I'm pro Trask, and, and I'd love to see the Bears get him in the second round. They, they, it's worth remembering though, the Bears already have a QB1, they got the Red Rocket, so Trask can sit behind the great Andy Dalton, be able to, to develop. But, you know, in all seriousness though, I think Kyle Trask needs a year or two, so he's going into a situation like that. But I just get this feeling that we're going into day three, and again, Mel Kuyper, the best available, is gonna come up, and Kyle Trask is gonna be sitting there at the top of that list. Don't know why, just feel like that's gonna happen. I've got one last bold SEC quarterback prediction. I'm going to do my Roger Goodell voice here, which is basic boring white guy. With the 224th pick of the 2021 NFL Draft, the Philadelphia Eagles select Felipe Franks, quarterback, Arkansas. Why would the Eagles take Felipe Franks in the sixth round, you ask? Why would they do anything? Exactly. No, it makes so much sense. Right? Felipe Franks. His old quarterbacks coach at Florida is the new quarterbacks coach with the Eagles, Brian Johnson. That's Felipe's guy. They stayed in touch a lot this past year. They have a really good relationship. I think maybe Brian Johnson's like, hey, you know what? Go after this kid. I had him at Florida. Kid's got a cannon. He's super raw. And, you know, there are a lot of things that we would have to figure out. But dude has a cannon for an arm and just give me like a year or two to be able to kind of work with him and we could do worse in the sixth round there's worse talent available in the sixth round than felipe frank so 224th pick felipe franks can't miss predictions these are we need to remember let's go big picture with some can't miss draft predictions will the sec win the draft title for the 15th consecutive year duh of course moving on will the sec have the most first rounders Uh, Does a big bag of flour make a really big biscuit? You bet. Which SEC team will have the most draft picks? No, screw that. Let's do um, which SEC team is, which non-Bama SEC team will have the most draft picks? Even though LSU had that title this past year, of course, they won't probably get there in 2021. So among non-Alabama SEC teams, 
Florida should probably have the most draft picks. One would think. But if Jamie Newman counts for Georgia, I'll take Georgia. I need to, and this is a good reminder for myself, I need to put that into my phone. I need to set an alert on my phone um, for the Georgia Twitter account after the Jamie Newman selection is made. Because I, I, I cannot wait for that. If there's one day three thing that I'm like sitting on pins and needles for, it's Jamie Newman selection. Because is Georgia's official Twitter account going to have some sort of like developed here hashtag for that? Or do they just kind of take the high road? They congratulate him. Either way, whatever happens, the replies are going to be electric. Cannot wait for that. It'll be like Georgia fans, Florida fans doing what's the handshake tweet? We're like Georgia fans on one side, Florida fans on one side, and then the handshake thing fighting over Jamie Newman's lack of relevance. If you this find past yourself uh, online defending if Jamie Newman played for your SEC school, don't. <laughs> don't. Don't. I don't think Georgia fans will do that. Something tells me they are not going to be crazy about when he comes off the board. Georgia great Jamie Newman. A sneaky team to have like six guys drafted is Kentucky. Because Jamin Davis, Kelvin Joseph, um, and by the way, just count him for LSU as well. Not sure if LSU is going to have that brag tweet ready to go, but they might. Drake Jackson, Quinton Bohanna, and then the two guys that are kind of up in the air, Landon Young and Boogie Watson. So that would actually be a record in the modern era with seven rounds for Kentucky. They had five guys drafted back in 2019, that Josh Allen class, of course. So this is, of course, can't miss prediction. So I'm just going to say Kentucky is going to break its own draft record and have six guys drafted. One last can't miss prediction. The SEC will flex on everyone. Easiest bet in the entire draft. The brag tweets, they're going to be coming out in full force. Get ready for it. Can't miss predictions. Etch them all in stone. Okay. Let's go to my interview with Cole Kubelik. We got to talk about some pretty noteworthy takeaways that he had from Georgia's spring game a couple weeks ago. Uh, he's got some new perspective on JT Daniels as well. And I also thought he gave a, a really fair answer on Bo Nix in year three. I, you know, I trust all things Cole when it comes to, when it comes to Auburn. Um, we also were able to get into some draft stuff and then even talked a little blooming onion. Yeah, Outback Steakhouse. We know they're listening. So here is Cole Kubelik. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is Cole Kubelik. Cole, I'm going to be honest, man. I don't like to admit when another person in sports media makes me jealous, but watching you go to town on that Bloomin' Onion at the Outback Bowl, it, it felt like the mama I've made it moment. Uh, let's, let's just start with the all-important two-part question here. How, how did that electric spot, which, I mean, in terms of sideline spots that you can do in a game, that's like as good as it gets. How did that come about? And also, how many Bloomin' Onions have you consumed since then? <laughs> um, only one since. Uh, I did have to make a trip to Outback soon after that because I only got a couple bites of it during the game. And I mean, I obviously easily could have housed the entire thing, but... I, I had about a quarter and a half of football left and it was uh, the heat index was over a hundred in Tampa and that would have just been a recipe for disaster. So we decided not yeah. to do that. Uh, when I first got assigned that game with, with Jordan and Tom, our, our normal producer from our first few years together, Joe Taylor was actually the producer on the game. And so I'm pretty comfortable with him. I know Joe, Joe knows me, like how much we like to have fun. I mean, he's worked with us all a bunch. And so, you know, I'm just envisioning the old Outback Bowl where you, you got the Bloomin' Onion costume mascot and you got the 
Um, you got the coconut shrimp, complete waste of time, by the way, mascot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if this team, if Ole Miss wins, it's, you know, team Bloomin' Onion. If uh, Indiana wins, it's team coconut shrimp, whatever it was. And so I'm thinking, all right, I said, well, we're going to have, you know, we're wrapping up our production meeting. And I said, we're, we're going to have a Bloomin' Onion for me to, to try, right? Like, we got to, and of course, Tom's like, well, we all want Bloomin' Onions. And so, Every production meeting that we would subsequently have, I would kind of throw that out at the end as a joke, not really thinking that anything was going to make it or come of it. And so then we, um, you know, we get we get going a little bit later, and about twenty four hours before kickoff, maybe a little, maybe a couple hours more than that, like a little more than a day's notice. Um, he had a contact tracing issue, and he gets taken off of our game. We had a new producer step in, and I'm like, listen, I'm not even gonna pretend to go like let's just make sure we get the key in the ignition and we put it in drive and we stay between the lanes like that's like so you know tom and jordan and i were at the same hotel we had a couple conversations about let's back off this we should still try to do that you know certain things that we wanted to make sure that that we could still execute and our new producer gets on the phone and he's like and cole you're you're trying we're trying to get you a blooming onion right i'm like listen man you I, I know how crazy this next day, day and a half is going to be for you. Let's just don't even don't worry about it. Like let's just let's just try to see what we can do. So probably middle of the second quarter, um, I could not go on the field for that game at Raymond James. So I had to stay in the front row. But they had, I think, the first three or four rows blocked off. So I was kind of walking by myself. And then I see this guy approach me, and he's wearing like official Outback Bowl gear. And he's got a plastic bag, and he hands it to me. This is like the middle of a play. He said, hey, this is for you. I said, what is it? He said, I think it's food. They said you'd eat it down here on camera. And I'm like, (laughs) all right. He's just like, I was told to give this to you. And so I I take it and, of course, don't even think twice about anything related to food as far as what someone could have done to it or said. Like, if it's good, I'm probably going to eat it. And so I get back to the table, and I open up, and I'm like, oh, Thank you, Jesus. And it was, it was a blooming onion. It was it had the sauce. It was hot. And so I kind of we go to break and we hit my producer and I was like, hey, just so you know, I got the, the blooming onion down here in talk back. And he's like, oh, okay, great. And so um, Tom, like, I guess went to the restroom or was, you know, fixing his hair or putting on more makeup or something. And he popped back on and our producer's like, hey, Tom, uh, just so you know, like later. Uh, Cole does have the blooming onion uh, down there, and so and Tom's like, "Will we come back to Cole on camera eating the blooming onion?" Then, and our <laughs> the producer's kind of like, "Well, do we need to, do we need to set this up?" He goes, "No, don't set it up." He's like, "Just put a camera on Cole. I'll bring it in. He'll be eating it. We'll do it. Trust me, we know how to do this. We've done this before." And I'm kind of thinking, "Well, not really this, but I mean, yeah, we we'll, we know how to make it work." And so I just kind of popped up, had the bloom, got going. And the, you know, the weirdest part about it was not the uh, 17,000 mentions that I got after that or the amount of people who, you know, decided to take the photograph and do things with it or whatever. But the biggest surprise takeaway that I had was, you know, when Van Pelt used it later that night, Stanford Steve kind of could identify with it and he loved it. And it was almost like Van Pelt was taken aback at the size of the bites that I was taking. And I mean, I just I couldn't believe that anybody would be surprised that you would grab a handful of I guess we'll call them the petals, the onion petals, mm-hmm. and I, who no one no one like goes in there acting as though their thumb and index finger are tweezers and is like playing operation and takes one of those things out of there, do they? Like that's not 
surely there's not people who really do that. Like I, it's like I told Steve, he called me to give me a heads up that it was on, and he's laughing about the size of the bites, and I was like, buddy, that's that's regular work. Like if you and I went to Outback right this second, that's the exact same way that I would eat that. Like why would I eat it any differently? Why would I grab one pedal and and try to lightly dunk it in the sauce? Like I mean. There's only going to be, especially if it's me and my butt. Maybe, maybe the problem is when I think I was really introduced to to blooming onions is when I was in college. And when I was in college, like Outback was a nice dinner. It was a nice night out. And so sometimes my teammates and I would go, or sometimes my dad would go. We would, my teammates would go with me because he would pay. And it's like you're kind of fending for yourself there because you know there's only so many bites. So it's like, yeah, I'm going to get like 11 or 6 in one bite and then just jam it in to make sure I get my my fix. So (laughs) I was surprised mostly that people were actually surprised by the size of the bites that I was taking because to me, they felt absolutely normal. I did nothing extra from a size of bite when I actually cut that. So that actually surprised me more than anything else. All right, I'm calling dibs. I don't care if the athletic contacts you, whoever it is that wants to get dibs on the oral history of Cole Kubelik eating a blooming onion on national television. I, I want dibs on writing that story, and I feel like we just got a lot of it with like a, a seven-minute answer, but I'm glad that you went there because my follow-up was going to be, was there any conversations about coconut shrimp? And you quickly squashed that, and I'm glad because Ooh. I shouldn't have to ask no. you about that. Bloomin' Onion is in a class of its own, and people who think that coconut shrimp is right there with Bloomin' Onion, they're, they're insane. And I, I don't there, there are two types of people in the world, and th- those are one of them. In non-Outback Steakhouse-related questions here, um, I, I want to hit on a couple of things that you made headlines for in the last couple of weeks. Well, the, only, the, only people, the only people that are even close to being that bad are the people that call it an awesome blossom and, and think that oh. that's anywhere near what an actual blooming onion is because that's not even close either. But coconut no, shrimp is a waste of time. I've never even tried one of those, and I never will. I don't know why you would do that to yourself. Amen. Preaching to the choir on that one. Uh, Georgia spring game, you had two takeaways that I think UGA fans looked at and they were probably ecstatic about. One of them was the JT Daniels sit-down that you guys had with your production crew, and you said it was the most impressive that you've had during your time doing this with SEC Network. The organization, the attention to, de- to detail, like all of those things with JT Daniels, it, it's there. Is there a story that you can share from that specific interaction that kind of puts that all into perspective? I think the main thing is just, you know, how he how he sort of delegates his film study uh, and he does it on his own. And, you know, he 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 has things broken down throughout the course of the week. And then also, I mean, just to think about what a film junkie football nerd he is. I mean, he just randomly decided himself to go back and watch 2017 Alex Smith and watch the entire season. And because he wanted to study his footwork because he thinks he's a guy that, that has elite footwork in the NFL. So, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know a lot of college quarterbacks that are going back and watching the NFL guys like him um, specifically for certain things or even as much. And I don't know as many college quarterbacks that are sort of breaking down film on the same schedule each week in their own way, completely opposite of what they're doing with their position coach or coordinator or anything like that. So, uh, attention to detail, organization, over the top, something that I haven't really seen from a lot of college football players. And I think a lot of it, too, I'll be the first one to admit, I didn't know him. I hadn't been around him. I hadn't talked to him. 
I don't know if I had a false perception of him, but I just didn't have a perception. And I think a lot of people just think, oh, this California kid, he probably just has a strong arm. So he just, you know, that's why he kept playing football, you know, uh, but doesn't really love the game. And it's the exact opposite. I mean, the guy loves football. He loves digesting it. He loves taking in as much as he can about it, learning about it, whether it's technique, whether it's fundamentals, whether it's what other guys are doing, how to get better, you know, identifying defenses. I mean, all of it. And so, and we heard that from his teammates too. We got to talk to a couple of his teammates, one on defense that, you know, said right away, he's in the facility more than some of the coaches are. Like that's just who he is. I don't think the guy's left Athens since he got there. I don't think he's taken like a vacation or anything. So I think just being introduced to everything that he is and what football is to him was probably a big enough surprise for all of us and very impressive. If I said to you, Cole, is this the guy who can end the 1980 jokes? Would you have a different answer to that question now compared to before your sit down with him? Um, I, mean, I might have a little more confidence in saying it, but I mean, I would first say that, I mean, he can't do it. It's got to be the offensive line. It's got to be the backs, the tight ends, the receivers, the defense. I mean, there's, you know, coaches and he have to be on the same page. They're going to have to stay healthy. It's just, there's a lot that goes into that. But do I think that if all things align, and it's kind of just on him and everything else is what I expect it could be, then, yeah, I think he has the ability. I think he has the talent. And and maybe now I'm a little bit more confident that he has the mentality to be able to go do that. So, um, I mean, I didn't need to know from a skill set perspective. I watched him on film last year. I went back and watched all his stuff from last year before the spring game. So, I mean, I knew good and well what he was capable of. And I think that's another thing, too, that we just kind of forget. I mean, just like going back and, and researching him before that spring game, I'm just, I kind of had this, I guess, like a, awakening moment as it pertains to JT Daniels. Of, we forgot that this guy was the Gatorade High School Player of the Year after his junior year, where at, at minor day they go undefeated and win a state championship and then goes to USC a year early. Now, he was held back early in life, so his age actually aligns with where he is now, but. You know, I, just, I think some people look at it as, oh, you know, he went out there and changed coordinators and all of a sudden Keaton Slovis was the guy, so he just bailed or he just left. Or I think there's more to it than that. And then I think there's a lot more to, you know, his mentality and his background, how competitive he is. I mean, I've heard stories about as a sixth grader, him getting on the whiteboard and being more impressive than the, the senior and junior quarterbacks that were playing in high school. And I, mean, I, just, I, I think we just kind of have dismissed what he was coming out and maybe we shouldn't be as surprised that he's been successful as he has. You said there's optimism about George Pickens returning in 2021, and if if he were to return, targeting that Tennessee date would kind of be the idea. And I'm not even as high on Pickens as, as others are, but I, obviously I would love to see the kid healthy, playing in this offense that stretches the field in a different way under, under Todd Munkin. From those quotes, which were uh, from an interview that you did with our friend uh, Mike Griffith at Dog Nation, it, it sounds like the bigger issue with Pickens is going to be whether he wants to expedite the rehab for the NFL draft. Is that a fair assessment at this point? And like that's going to be the bigger hurdle as opposed to being able to come back from a clean ACL tear? Oh, it could be. I mean, my I just I wanted to hear that he wants to come back. And I wanted to hear that the school wants to try to get him back. And when I heard both of those things, that gave me the confidence to say, you know, I don't know why you guys are so hesitant here. If you look at the timeline, he absolutely could be ready by the end of the season. I mean, that's all it is. It's And, and like you said, I mean, it's been 
it's been made clear that there was no other damage done other than the ACL that was torn. And where we are today with torn ACLs and the rehabilitation process, like you can be ready to play football very soon after that thing heals itself. And obviously playing receiver and cutting and being tied up with people and doing things is, you know, there's a comfort level that's going to have to come with that. I've been through it, you know, torn my right ACL twice. I know about gaining the confidence to be able to go and do the things you did before. And that takes some time, but I think you can gain a lot of those leading up to when you're technically cleared as healed and then be ready to play football. Same thing with the conditioning. Like you have a Jones fracture, you have a screw put in your foot. You can't do anything near the type of conditioning you're going to need to do while you're allowing that to heal or rehabilitating it to when you're actually cleared to go play football. ACL is the kind of opposite of that. You're going to be able to go out there and run. You're going to start cutting and doing different things so you can run routes and you can get some cardio work in before you're actually cleared to go play and considered to be healthy or the graft is healed once it's in your knee. So I just think the timeline really sort of lines itself up. And if I would have heard, you know, eh, we'll see, or, you know, we don't really know, we'll see how it plays out. But, you know, it, I think both parties have made it pretty clear that they want to try to do that. And I think it will only motivate him. This is, this is my opinion. I think it will only motivate him if they're in a national title hunt. And then yeah. all of a sudden, if you can get back out there and be healthy and you can give three good preseason games, three good three good regular season games, even two good regular season games and three good postseason games, you're out. You can go. And, and there's the film that, that people need and there's the proof that you're healthy and you know, you're, you're ready to go ahead and move on. So I don't necessarily think it has to be one or the other. I think the interesting thing, too, with Pickens is he can kind of combat some of the pre-draft narratives that are going to be out there with him and some of the potential character concerns that are going to come up as we know these guys get picked apart. And by coming back with that timeline, that would sort of debunk some of that stuff and that he is all about, you know, all about the team and all about, you know, having his head in the right place. And that, that's something that would definitely help him as well. Um, you, you said on Feinbaum that you might have Georgia as your number one team in the country entering 2021. That, though, was before the Pickens injury, also before the spring game where you got the up-close look at them. Where are you at with that right now? I mean, I, I think if we're, if we're debating who's won going into this season, I think Georgia's in that conversation. Um, I mean, if I'm, if I'm selecting today, I'd probably still have that. I mean, if, if we're picking number one is who we think has the best chance to win a national title – I'm probably putting Georgia there. I mean, their concerns are a little bit less than what mine are with some other teams. You mentioned veteran quarterback, year two in the system. A lot of talent on the offensive line, but that's a group that needs to grow. I think you look at the tight ends that they're going to bring with that. Uh, Washington, Fitzpatrick, I think that that group can help offset some of what they have that might be concerning with the offensive line. Really good group of running backs. I think receivers that get back and get healthy will be more than enough once the season begins. And then defensively, yeah, the, you know the corner corner positions a, a little bit concerned, but I mean, you got elite recruits. I mean, you got guys that are super talented, and you've got an elite defensive line, arguably the best. I think them and I think, I think probably Clemson and Georgia bringing the two best defensive lines to the table going into this season. So, with the way that they've recruited, with what they already have, the guys they have coaching them and drawing up the X's and O's. I mean, I, I probably have Georgia number one. Probably have Alabama two. Probably have Clemson three. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think they're, they're not just in the discussion. I think with, based on what they have coming back and the schedule too, I mean, they can, there's no reason they couldn't lose to Clemson in a competitive game. I mean, hell, even if they got blown out and then run the table, beat Alabama in the SEC championship game, you're in. How are you not yeah. in? 
and the and the schedule is is one that's very manageable for them. When you look at Florida, probably taking a bit of a step back. You know, I think Kentucky's got a chance to be better. Defense can be good. Maybe they open up the offense, but I don't think it's going to be enough for Georgia right now. Um, you know, I think I think I think Missouri will surprise some folks, but I don't know if they're ready to, to, to get that upset just yet. Uh, you know, Tennessee is who knows. Um, I like some of what I saw in the spring game, but I think they in South Carolina. There's just such a big talent gap right now. It's going to be tough for them to get those wins. Auburn's also a bit of an unknown. I uh, think Bigsby going to be great, but is Bo Nix going to take the next step? You know, Georgia Tech and Jeff are on their way, but again, talent-wise, they're just they're just not ready to be there to compete with them right in a second. So, I think the schedule, in more ways than one, actually sets up for Georgia to be in that picture. Let's talk about Auburn because every year I feel like I ask you something Bo Nix related and I feel like you've been on the money with your assessment of him even going back to that first year where we talk about him getting that help from the defense early on. Could that be something that fuels Auburn in some of these these tougher games when they were you know, starting off the year against Oregon and they had to go to Texas A&M and all that and that played out. I think though at this point of his career, even the Knicks optimists, they're still a bit in wait and see mode with running this offense with Mike Bobo. I know we're going to see him do some different things. He's going under center. They're going to put more of that emphasis on being able to step up in the pocket. But are you sold on this version of Knicks being the best version of Knicks? No, I'm not sold because if it is going to be the best version, he has to accept a lot of coaching. And I don't think that he's proven just yet that he's ready to do that. And it doesn't mean that he can't do it. And we're not going to really learn that in a spring game. So, um, I mean, I, I, I look at little things when, I, when we talk about quarterbacks like body language, things of that nature. And, you know, I, we, had, we, had the old, we had the Mississippi State-Auburn game, last game of the year. And, you know, we talked about kind of where he sits in between series and how much communication there is between series. Those things just have to change, bottom line. They, they have to change. It's not all about – touchdowns versus interceptions, wins versus losses, completion percentage, yards, whatever. It's not it. I mean, it's number one, decision-making. Number two, in my opinion, it's leadership being presidential. And number three is, is understanding the situation and understanding the position. I mean, you, 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 when, the, when the clock's running down and you're trying to tie the game or take the lead, you don't need to run over a corner while you're going out of bounds. Like, you, you don't need to try to hurdle that guy. Just step out of bounds and stop the clock. You know, the hero ball of, you know, trying to throw a ball away when you're in the pocket, eluding the rush. Like, just knowing it's okay if we take a sack on second down. we got two more downs to try to obtain this first down and keep this drive alive and score towards the end of a game. Bailing on your protection early. Um, and then when you do, you know, obviously, I mean, visibly, people can see that you have an issue with the offensive line for that happening. Um, or you have an issue with the receiver not making a play. It's okay to have that issue, but it's how that message is delivered that I think sometimes needs to change. The good news is this is a system that could fit his skill set very well, and he's got two guys that have played the position, coached the position, coordinated offenses right there with him in Brian Harson and Mike Bobo. Um, and Bobo doesn't put up with a lot of that stuff, man. He, and, and Harson's pretty – I think Harson's – I think he's more hard-nosed than a lot of people imagine or believe. But he's got two guys that don't put up with a lot. And – uh, I think that they understand what they're dealing with and what needs to happen. And, you know, they're going to do their best to give him the coaching, but he has to accept it because I, mean, I can I can sit there and deliver the right message to the right guy a lot of the time, but if he doesn't want to hear it, he's going to still do it his way. 
doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. You're, you're not going to take many steps as far as how you develop or how you improve as a player. Cole, I want to uh, talk a few draft prospects before I let you go here. Um, you guys had a ton of Kentucky games over the year. I know Tom Hart is the mayor of Kentucky. Um, the name Jamin Davis is suddenly a household name for NFL Draft Twitter. And the dude, if you haven't seen him, physical freak in every way, I think you can see like eight ribs, maybe 10. Um, it, it's insane what he's been able to do in the pre-draft process to help himself. What were some of your impressions of him at Kentucky? And are you buying some of this round one talk that he's been getting? Um, yeah, I mean, I can remember multiple times that we would sit down with the Kentucky staff and you're just kind of like, you know, you're asking Brad Davis, like, when is this dude going to get more reps here? Like, when are we going to cut him loose? And they, they needed him to do a lot of different things. And I think that's why some people might not view him as being elite at one thing, but he's got elite twitch. I mean, big time get off and obviously has the size and the measurables to go along with that. I just don't know if he was able to really find a home that was going to impress people who weren't just watching him because he didn't Mm. pile up a ton of stats and he didn't have a lot of highlight plays, but he was doing what that defense needed him to do, sometimes on the ball, sometimes off the ball, sometimes in coverage, sometimes blitzing, sometimes rushing off the edge. They They needed him to be a lot of different things for that defense, and that's why a lot of folks didn't really lock on to him. But... He's he's a big time talent, and and he's a guy that I think when you when you think about what you want at the next level to, to come off the edge and sort of be an impact guy out there, he's got it because he can he can help you in space. He can cover a little bit, and then he's got that that big time that big boy get off when he needs to get after the quarterback. So he's a guy that I liked for a while. I mean, I know he didn't really make a true impact, but somebody that's been fun to watch. If Kellen Mond comes off the board early in the second round, as some have speculated, what would your reaction be to that? I wouldn't be surprised because I think if you're taking a quarterback in the second, you're not taking, you're not anticipating having a day one starter. You're probably a team that's looking for the next guy or looking for a viable backup. You're drafting someone that you sort of believe in, but don't believe in them right this second. Um, and financially, I think that's okay. I think you're still in a good spot there. Uh, from a salary cap perspective of what you're getting and what you're going to need him for. And I think he's a guy that could have success in the NFL. Um, you know, needs to cut down on the turnovers a little bit. Um, obviously, the thing about it is, you know, he's mobile, he's durable for damn sure. I mean, the guy took big hits running the ball and in the pocket and continued to play, never missed extended period of time. He's got a plenty of arm. Um, the accuracy is going to need to improve, but – I mean, as far as the offense goes, like Jimbo gives you everything. Like he's, he will not have an offense that is too much more extensive in the NFL than what he's been dealing with in college. So I think mentally, it won't be near as a big of a jump for him either. And then the kid's a leader. He's a great kid, great individual, good locker room guy, um, winner, competitive. So uh, football means a lot to him. I think all those things would be something that you would want in that kind of a quarterback that you were bringing in. Somebody that you were hoping could grow into it, but you're just not 100% sure, so you're not drafting them to where they need to be that guy right now. Is there a non-round one guy, maybe from the SEC, that you, you just find yourself kind of shaking your head, wondering why isn't this guy getting more love? Should, this, this guy needs to be in that conversation, and maybe he will be, but at right now it doesn't seem like he's going to be that round one guy. So I guess this would kind of be like your sleeper, 
your go-to-bat for guys? Is there somebody who stands out for you? I mean, the, the one that I keep coming back to, and I've actually seen, I think Kuiper had him in his last first round, in his last mock, but it took a while. And I tweeted something out about it a couple of weeks ago. It took a while for people to really say it publicly. I don't know why people aren't talking about Elijah Moore. And mm-hmm. I think the, the more confusing part about that is you get so many people who so passionately talk about Devonta Smith, who talk about Jalen Waddle, and who talk about Kadarius Toney, but then they just leave Elijah Moore out like he's going to come off the board two rounds later than those guys. I don't, I don't know what the real difference is, to be honest with you. You know, is, is Kadarius a little bit bigger and heavier? Yes. Um, I think Kadarius Toney is, is your change of direction guy, your quick hitter, your screen guy that can always create and always find ways to give you an explosive play in lower percentage throws. I don't know if he's good as down the field as an Elijah Moore is. I think Devonta's probably your best receiver at all three levels. Great route runner, great hands, extremely smooth. Uh, the size a little bit of a concern. Elijah Moore's heavier. And, I, you know, I think if you're talking about versatility, a guy that's lined up in the backfield, um, a guy that's lined up in the slot, he's lined up out wide. He's been asked to run deep balls. He can get over the top of the defense. Great hands, great catches, can catch in traffic, can work the middle of the field, uh, you know, can take jets and bubbles, things like that. I mean, I, there's nothing that I look at Elijah Moore and say, well, he can't do that. I just – nothing. And, you know, he's – I think the size between he and Waddle is comparable. Um, I think Waddle's like an inch taller, but I think I think Moore's like a little bit heavier. It's about the same. You know, Waddle obviously coming off of an injury, but super explosive. So – I think the most versatile do more from that group is Elijah Moore. And I don't know if it's because he played at Ole Miss or if he decided to opt out late, whatever it is. Um, you know, people just don't view him on the same level as they do those other three guys. And I think he should be right there in the middle of that conversation. Appreciate sure the choir on that one. I'll, I'll get you out of here on this, this last question. Um, there's a decent chance that we don't see an SEC offensive or defensive lineman drafted in the first round, which – there, once upon a time, you, you didn't see an SEC offensive or defensive lineman you know, go 10 picks without one in the first round. And now it, it looks like we could see that happen for the first time since this whole draft streak began back in 2007. As a trenches advocate yourself, one of the most vocal there is in the business, what's your perspective on that shift in philosophy with what's being prioritized to the next level? Because it, it doesn't really feel like a lack of development thing either. No, I mean, I, I think that you're looking at it in a couple of different positions. I mean, we've seen this be ha- this has been happening in running back for a while. Um, you know, I think now, too, you're looking at some defensive linemen are getting sleeker, a little bit lighter. But, I, I mean, I still think there's going to be a place for a Tyler Shelvin. Um, you know, I, I still think that there's going to be places for your big, bolder, run-stopping defensive tackles. I don't think those are going to be completely gone, but – you know, do you have more hybrid defensive and outside linebackers? Yeah. Do you want more guys with more versatility? Yes. That's why I think some of this, some of this Christian Barmore sliding middle of the first, middle of the second, late, early third talk is a little bit bogus because there's not another guy in that body type that gives you the kind of twitch and the ability and the movement that he does. Are there legitimate concerns? Yes. He would have been on the field more consistently if he was the guy that knew how to play within the scheme. And if he was a guy that took the coaching the way that he should in the doghouse, some, of course, but you can't sit there and tell me that he doesn't make plays. And I hear people saying, well, he doesn't make plays. Well, he's a half a sack behind the lead in the sec for sacks, you know, most sacks last year, only one player had more and it was a half a sack more. I mean, look at the tackles for loss. Look at when he is playing the disruption that he causes more times than not. So, 
Um, consistency, taking coaching, a bit of an issue, being a little bit stubborn, yes. But there's not another guy physically that has that kind of a frame that's capable of what he's having, and I think he is more today's defensive tackle. You know, he's the guy that's going to give you, you know, 300, 310, 315 and still be able to move. He's going to be loose. He's going to be able to generate an inside pass rush. You know, you dent that, that, that the nose of that pocket these days, that's almost as valuable as giving you that edge presence because you're removing passing lanes. You're, you're obviously affecting the vision of the quarterback, and more times than not, you're going to force them to move. And with as much, as much as the ball is getting out quickly these days, you know, that becomes just as valuable, if not more valuable. So, you know, you look at tight end and, you know, some of these hybrid flex tight ends that we're talking about. I mean, a Kyle Pitts probably five years ago, people would say, well, I can't line him up in line. He's, he's too light, can't block, whatever. But he actually is a very willing blocker. And now look how valuable uh-huh. he is because he's kind of the unicorn of this draft. So, yeah, a lot of things are changing. A lot of things still stay the same, but – you know, offensive line, can you get dudes that block? All right. If so, combine them with elite talent like a Vinay Sewell, and it's probably going to be worth your pick. Um, you know, I, I think that there are a lot of positions in this draft that are very, very good, if not great, on the very high end of that position. So one to three or four guys. And then there's a fairly significant drop-off. And then you have a group of really good players that can probably come in and play or will be starters. And – that bunch, that tier is much larger than a lot of other positions. I think running back, you could probably look at it that way. I think big receivers, you could probably look at it that way. Offensive tackle is definitely that way. Center is probably that way in this draft. Um, you know, I think edge defender is one that I don't really know if there is a true edge defender that anyone should feel completely great about in this draft. So I think there's a lot of positions that – okay, you know who the first or second guy off the board is going to be, kind of like quarterback with what you're talking about. I mean, we know who the first three, four are, but then I think there's a pretty big drop-off. But then I think you have Mon, Trask, Sills, and a couple other guys that fit in right there. And you say, okay, those are maybe guys one day down the road potentially could come in and be starters for us. Colt, this has been great stuff as always. Appreciate it. We'll talk soon, man. All right. Appreciate you having me, Connor. What's my destiny, Mom? You're going to have to figure that out for yourself. Life is a box of chocolates, Forrest. You never know what you're going to get. What did everyone think of the new Figuring Out intro? Hopefully people like that. People will recognize maybe a little, a little Forrest Gump action for the people. Life is a box of chocolates, Will. People forget that. They don't actually forget that. The subject for today's figuring it out is something that uh, Forrest Gump pretty familiar with actually, winning championships. Specifically, it's celebrating your team winning a championship as an adult. What guidelines should we follow? Should it be a free-for-all? How do you handle that in your place of business, etc. From personal experience here, the only real scenario that I've had to, to deal with is actually a pretty bad example in my opinion. 2016 Cubs, of course, I've brought up the stories in the past. Nothing in my life is ever going to top that as a sports fan. I've accepted that, that at age 26, I had the best moment I will have my entire life as a sports fan. And there are personal reasons as well with, you know, the fact that like that was basically the last postseason that my dad didn't have terminal cancer for. My grandpa died less than a year after that Cubs World Series and finally got to see a Cubs World Series. Like there there are elements to that that will just never, ever be... They'll, they'll never be beat, and I'm okay with that. I'm totally okay with that. But I was the guy who, when we had our old offices at SDS, I was wearing Cubs jerseys every single day, 
and I, I enjoyed every second of it. And in terms of like the trolling, I didn't really do that and it's because I don't have a ton of Cardinal fans in my life outside of Adam Spencer, but I wasn't on that, that level with Adam Spencer yet where I was gonna like troll him about you know the Cubs winning it all. I think even some Cardinal fans were like, crap, they finally won it all. We really need to just kind of take a step back. That'll be like maybe what Florida fans are when Georgia finally wins it all. They'll be like, all right, we need to, We'll dial it back a little bit. We'll let them have their fun. We need to have our fun. And I didn't do anything crazy, totally irrational, with the exception of the uncontrollable sobbing that just comes when your team wins a championship that you think is never going to happen. And when it finally does, you know, there's the yelling and Bryant looks like he slips, throwing the ball to Rizzo at first base, and you think that ball's gonna sail over his head, and you're telling yourself that it's it's pain and suffering all over again, and then it's finally not. And in that moment, there's just nothing that you can do. You think you can predict your reactions in these moments, and you just can't. Even when the Blackhawks won it all back in 2010 for the first time, I, I remember my reaction just being like, you know, that of a bandwagon fan. You celebrate it, you enjoy it, but you don't appreciate it in the long-lasting way in the same way that you do, you know, the teams that you grew up watching and you grew up rooting for. So my, my championship reactions as an adult, I'm pretty unfamiliar with it. Just very, very unfamiliar with it. Haven't experienced it from, you know, like Indiana basketball winning a national championship or anything like that. So um, I'm not very well versed in that. Will, what about yourself? Yeah, I think... Uh... I think you're making some great points. I, I think that for me, obviously, it's the Saints and a couple LSU titles. I think that I was way too young to appreciate how tough the Saints ring was. And I literally, mm -hmm. I probably, I started following the Saints in 06 and Breeze got there and I was like, oh, this is what the NFL is like? This is sick, man. We're throwing touchdowns. Let's go. And every year since then, it's been pain. So, <laughs> so, true. This is so true. if I could like time machine, like top five or 10 time machines for me is like go back to younger me and be like, please cherish this. It's so good. I think 2019, obviously, man, you make a really good point about that uh, Cubs thing. And I guess that's probably right. Cause I went to that game with my mom. Uh, it was super cool. It was like, like I got to see my pastor at the SEC championship from when I was growing up. Cause he's a big LSU fan. Shout out pastor Chris. And uh, yeah, it was just every step of the way. It was just so like. Somebody made a point the other day during the Texas game. There's a gif of Edward Dillier doing like a horns down. I was like, I don't even remember that because there were like five other moments oh, in the game. You, you know what I'm saying though? It's like, I remember Joe Burrow waving bye. I remember the touchdown. I remember the other long play. I remember the gritty. And I was like, oh my gosh, like there's so, it's kind of like the Cubs. It's like there are so many moments that you just can never have again. And so, yeah, I think that, you know, you saw me during that like championship run. We were at the SEC championship together and I had like the MJ shirt, like Michael Jordan with the cigar and the LSU yep. baseball jersey. And I was just like, I was living it, man. It would have been very embarrassing if LSU lost, but they didn't. So, <laughs> so yeah, I think, I think I'm with you. It's like next time that I'm celebrating a, a championship, I'm not going to go that buck wild about it. But yeah, it's like everything came together for me, just like I did with you. Agreed, agreed. We got some good responses in the Facebook group. Let's start with Drew Page. Um, speaking of the Cubs, Drew says, when the Cubs won it all in 2016, I just hugged my best friend and cried a little. He doesn't have a favorite team, so he just lived vicariously through me throughout the entire playoffs. I'm not super expressive, but I think just soaking it all in with the people um, I'm with is the best kind of celebration. Absolutely, 100%. There's, there's nothing that says that you have to go get wasted. I'm not even one of those people that says like you absolutely have to go to the parade, the championship parade to truly appreciate it. If, if you have the means to, if you can take off of work, if that's something that you want to do, that looks awesome and that looks like it would be a lot of fun. 
But I think celebrating titles with the people who have been there through the thick and thin is just so much fun. Like I'll I'll never forget FaceTime prep. I'll never forget FaceTime with my dad after the Cubs won it all. And that's that's a moment. Like I, I screenshotted it. I'll I'll save that moment for the rest of my life. And it, I didn't have to be in a crowd, you know, in Wrigleyville in, in the in the center of it. That moment is always going to be special for me because of that that conversation. And that 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 is like what just takes it over the top. So be be surrounded by the people that you know you love, and you know at least if you can't be in the same area as them, you know communicate with them and and just try and try and appreciate those moments with them because that's what makes it special. I'll, I'll say this, dude. I was, I'm on exactly the same page. That's really weird, like, the, back, like the, the, the mirroring of that because literally I told my mom, hey, if we win, we're going to Bourbon Street. And we got out of the stadium and I was like, I'm going to be honest, Bob, I don't want to go to Bourbon Street. Let's just go back to the hotel bar. Let's like hug it out. Like, like, like I, yeah. I don't, I don't want to go party with a bunch of random people. And my mom got me a bottle of uh, Dom Perignon and there was like this sick, I don't even know why this was open, but the hotel buffet, bro, it had like prime rib and like all this different stuff. My mom was like, yo, grab whatever, bro. I got you. And we were just <laughs> popping champagne. And like there's a picture of me just like wasted in this hotel bar, just like with my tongue out and my dog. Like, yeah, like just like, hugging my mom. And it's like, yeah, those are the moments, man. Like that's like, and that's what I told myself is like in 20 years, how do I want to remember this? Do I remember partying with a bunch of random drunk people? Or do I want to remember, you know, me and my mom growing up and like, that's the reason why I'm an LSU fan, you know? Amen. Amen. That's that's what makes everything worth, you know, it's what, it's what makes the pain worth, you know, kind of getting yourself through in those moments. Speaking of 2019 LSU, Matthew Cedro, uh, I personally celebrated a 2019 LSU win drunk in my living room because I couldn't get a ride to downtown New Orleans amidst the chaos, but I was too, can you imagine what the Ubers were at that time? My goodness, the surging. Um, but I was happy but I was too happy to care. I think there are no guidelines for the night of the game, but after that, you shouldn't actively celebrate with parties and such. As a winner, you, could, you should only troll your friends if they provoke it by attempting to troll you because that's what winners do. So, so true. Fact. I have also never bought championship gear and honestly don't ever want to. It can only reasonably worn until the next national championship is crowned. Then it just seems like you're holding on to the past, not worth the money for one year of glory. I want to quickly go to Wes Taylor here because Wes has the guidelines. <laughs> and I, I, Wes has some very good guidelines here. So Wes says, gear is dependent on your connection to the team. A fan that did not go to the school gets a year or two. If you are a graduate, you get three. Attending the school when it gets a title is a lifetime pass to sport the gear. So like if you went to LSU when they won it all in 2019, or if you went to Alabama last year, like you get the lifetime pass. Bandwagon fans, you get one year. Like when I jumped on the Florida bandwagon with you know Noah and Horford, I wore a Florida sweatshirt for about a year, and then I and then I got to college, and then I was like, nah, I can't do this anymore. So that's th those are great guidelines. I I like that, and look, I still wear my Cubs World Series hat. I have a mat outside in front of my like in, fr in my front door, um, and I used to always make fun of Cardinal fans when they would be when they would still have like the bumper bumper stickers from the 2011 World Series, just being like, you're a loser, that was seven years ago. As a Cubs fan, you thought that? <laughs> I did think that, I did think that. Okay. I probably shouldn't share that. That's a tough look, I realize that. 
I'm going to say within my five-year window, that's what I keep telling myself. I'm going to keep wearing the championship gear because 2021, this is my last year basically to be able to wear it. So I'm going to, I'm going to soak it in. I'm going to enjoy it. But I like those guidelines. Wes, that is really, really good. I think that makes a lot of sense. See, what I like to do um, is I wear my 2019 LSU SEC championship shirt around the office because everybody's a Georgia fan. And they're never gonna win the SEC. No, just kidding. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But it's like that's the thing is like you gotta you gotta pick your spots. You can't just be Mister like my team just won a championship. But it's like it's gotta be a little subtle, muted like that, you know? Yep. A little, little muted. Yeah. Speaking of Georgia fans, Derek Walden. As a Georgia fan, there will be so much trolling of friends and Florida fans alike. All rules and sportsmanship will be out the window, and I will never stop wearing the championship gear ever. You do you, Derek. If Georgia wins it all, it's a different stratosphere in terms of that championship gear. If you were at a tailgate and you were wearing a Georgia 1980 National Championship crew neck sweatshirt, I think that would pass. Like nobody's gonna be like, you idiot, you're still holding on to that. It's kind of self-trolling in a way. Like there was a lot of the Cubs 1908 World Series stuff back in like the early 2000s that I would see people wearing all the time because it was getting close to that that 100 year mark. But it's kind of like, all right, you know, you're, you're kind of self-deprecating in this. There's something to be said for that. But if you want to wear a championship championship gear after a team like Georgia wins it all for the rest of time, I'm not going to sit here and say that that's dumb. I, I think that you're well within your rights to be able to do that. Um, Chris, Chris Millen, he says, I only talk crap in direct proportion to who talks crap first. Otherwise, I don't do much. Uh, I enjoy the wins always, but you gotta be there for the less than good times too. That said, as a Bama fan who works in a place primarily full of UGA fans, I do enjoy it when we beat them and also dread the day they finally top us. It's coming, Chris. I think it's coming, man. It's gonna happen eventually. Andrew Diaz, we'll close on this one. Um, he says, depends on the team. If Orlando City or Minnesota United won the MLS Cup, I'd definitely be taking in some celebratory shots slash beers. Oh, he's got a couple of MLS teams. All right, um, talking a little smack and I'd probably enjoy it for a year or so. Same could be said if the Magic ever won the finals. Ha, all yes, of us, very buddy. True. We're all celebrating together. Yeah. <laughs> right there with you, man. Uh, Florida winning in basketball or football would be a step up in obnoxiousness. Full cry and echoing Wes Taylor, it'd probably be three years of smack talk and title swag to friends and family. There is one team, though, that I would absolutely melt down for and not even feel bad about it. If the U.S. men ever won the World Cup, everything would be on the table. Long, unnecessary, ugly crying, calling out of work the next day, plane tickets to go see the parade, hundreds, maybe thousands of dollars spent on commemorative memorabilia, I will lose my, yeah, you know what. Andrew, that's a good answer too. And when you got the country pride taken in as well, that takes it up a notch. And that's a different level of fandom. It does kind of feel different when you're watching like a national team or something like that. And you know, like the Basketball's not really the same thing because that, that's winning all the time. That's essentially Alabama football, I would think, at this point. But those, those moments are still appreciated. But U.S. men's soccer team winning the World Cup would be the ultimate reaction. Well, the thing is, no one's going to disagree with you because if they do, they look like a communist. So it's like actually the perfect thing to celebrate. 
That kind of is. And if that is kind of the once in a lifetime thing, which based on the way it's gone for American soccer in the past, or as we say, American football, that that probably would qualify. I don't think anybody's going to hate on you. And I think there would be a lot of people who would jump on the bandwagon and you wouldn't necessarily have to justify that to your coworkers in the same sort of way. Because there would be like this this camaraderie if it ever got to that point within the office, within like whatever office you work at, of like, oh my gosh, U.S. men's team, or they're finally going to win a World Cup. It's finally happening. So I don't think you would have to justify that in the same way. Whereas, like, all right, Orlando City winning an MLS Cup, I, I don't know. I don't know that the employers are, are going to be fully on board with that. That might be a little bit tougher. Thank you to everybody who submitted a response. Um, a lot of good ones. Really like that topic. Will, shout out to you for coming up with that one. Um, we're going to do birthdays next week because um, one of the two of us is turning 31 in the next few days. So um, we're just throwing that out there. If you have not, leave us a five-star review. Like, subscribe. Go subscribe to our newsletter. Go subscribe to College Football Uncensored wherever you get your podcast. Join the Facebook group. Hear your name read out loud. I'm figuring it out. And yes, next week we're going to have... A first-time guest, someone at ESPN, somebody I've been wanting to talk to for a long time. So look forward to that. Enjoy the draft, everyone. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.